Please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll read verse 9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. The subject of our sermons today is what I am calling the four states of Christ. And by that I mean the four states in which Jesus has and will exist from eternity past into eternity future. We will cover the first two states of Christ this morning, the pre-incarnate glory of Christ, and second, the humiliation of Christ Then, Lord willing, this evening, the last two states, the mediatorial glory of Christ and the glory of Christ in his eternal kingdom. We see the first two states of Jesus in this one verse here in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9. And Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, which is his pre-incarnate glory, Yet for your sake he became poor, the poverty of his humiliation as a man, that you through his poverty might become rich. The one verse here contains in this condensed form these first two states of Christ, his glory, his pre-inc- the riches of his pre-incarnate glory, and the poverty of his humiliation as a man in his life and death. On earth. Never was anyone so rich who became so poor. Never did anyone have such power who came to such weakness, from, from such glory to such shame. And never did anyone descend from such heights to such depths and leave such joy and pleasure to take such suffering and agony upon himself as our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul seems to drop this verse into a context here which, in which he has been discussing Christian giving. The Corinthians were preparing a gift to be sent to the saints in Jerusalem who were in persecution under need, and in order to stimulate generous giving on their behalf, Paul set before them Christ here as the highest possible example of self-giving. And what he was saying to the Corinthians was that when you sit down and write your check, and when you consider how much to put into the offering, you should remember what Jesus Christ has given and what he has done for your salvation. Paul could have commanded giving, but he would rather that it come from a willing and a cheerful heart. And for a Christian, for a Christian There is nothing that can create more generous and more willing giving than to consider the riches of Christ from which he came to the poverty that he endured for our salvation. 
He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know his grace, not just in what you know from the gospel, but you know his grace experientially in your own lives. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is self-giving here. It is by grace alone, unmerited mercy, that we who deserve nothing have been given everything to us from Christ. He mentions here the full name of the Savior. He is the Lord. He is the Master, a name of deity. He is Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners. And he is the Christ, the Anointed One promised from the Old Testament, the Messiah. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. We begin this morning with the first state of Christ, which is the pre-incarnate glory of Christ. By pre-incarnate, we speak of his existence before he came into this world in the incarnation. We think of where he was and how he lived and what belonged to him and what was his existence before he entered this world. Paul describes it here as riches in the beginning of the verse. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, and he was rich in all of the glory, the majesty, and the splendor of who he was and who he is as the eternal Son of God. He was rich as God is rich, equal with him in power and glory as with God the Father, so that everything that belonged to the Father belonged to him as well from eternity. He is called in the Bible the Son of God, which is a divine title given to him in the Scripture. We ought not to think of that title, Son of God, in human terms as if it implies any subordination in of the son to the father because in the bible it is a divine quali- a divine title and the son of god shares equally in all of the divine attributes with the father in the year 325 the nicene council established what has been accepted as the orthodox belief of christians ever since and They said that the Son of God was begotten of the essence of the Father and he was of the same substance as the Father, very God, very a very God. And what they were trying to do is to create some human words, essence and of the same substance to try to speak of something that they cannot truly understand. What they were trying to say is that Jesus, the Son of God, is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And he has always been and will always be eternally equal in majesty, glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit. This is what we find in many passages of the Scripture. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. He said, all things are that the Father has 
are mine. At the Last Supper, Philip asked the question. He said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The apostle wrote in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that he is the radiance, the outshining of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. We can use a simple syllogism of logic to prove the divine nature of Jesus. For example, we can say, only God is eternal. Jesus is eternal, and therefore Jesus must be God. Or we could say, only God has omnipotence to create, and Jesus has omnipotence to create, and so therefore Jesus is God. And we may say the same thing with all of the divine, incommunicable attributes, attributes that belong only to God so that whatever belongs to the Father belongs to the Son as well. And the Son has all of the glory and the majesty of God. When Paul says here that he was rich, he does not speak of material riches. He might could have spoken of material riches of this world because Christ is the creator of all things in this world and they all belong to him. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. And John says, all things came into being and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. Sometimes when we think of material things, we think of those things that belong to us. But nothing belongs to any one of us because all things belong to him by his creation. And whatever we hold in our hands is only by a stewardship from him to be used for his glory. From him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen. He was rich, yes, in material things, but that is not what Paul really is speaking of here in this passage. He is speaking of the richness, the spiritual richness that belonged to him as God. He was rich in his eternal nature. He had no beginning and he will have no end. He exists outside of time and space. He does not derive his being from any other. He is from everlasting to everlasting God. The prophet Micah in chapter 5 and verse 2, he predicted Bethlehem to be the place of his birth. But his birth was not his beginning because Micah said his goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Colossians 1 and verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. His self-existence, he is the 
all-sufficient God. He has life that comes from himself. In him is life, and he is not dependent upon anything outside of himself for life. He took the Old Testament title, I Am, Jehovah. To himself in the New Testament, in the Gospel, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He meant before Abraham was born 2,000 years before, I had my eternal existence. I am who I am. I am the same God who revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternal, self-sufficient God. He was rich in eternal life. He is he was, he was rich in all wisdom, knowledge, and everything belonged to him, that he, he knew everything in this world. All things are open to him, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He was rich in his immutability, which means his unchanging character. Thou art the same, the apostle says. Thy years will not come to an end. He will never grow old He will never diminish or lose any of his divine attributes as God. He is immortal. There are no seeds of death or change in him whatsoever. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was rich in love. God is love. All three persons of the Trinity. The Father with the Son. The Son and the Father. The Holy Spirit. Love among all three persons of the Trinity and unspeakable love that we have never known. He was rich in his omnipotence and he could do his will in heaven and upon earth by the word of his power. Isaiah speaks of him in chapter 9 and calls him the wonderful counselor because wisdom is found in him. He is mighty God who has all power He's the eternal Father from everlasting. And he is the Prince of Peace, the only one who can bring peace into this world. So he was rich in all the glory and majesty of being God in the divine attributes. A couple of passages that we'll look at just briefly. And one is in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. We are familiar with this passage, but we'll just lay our eyes on it briefly to remind ourselves of what Isaiah saw here in this vision. Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Isaiah had this vision. It was in the year of the death of King Uzziah, who had been king of Israel for decades, and now the throne of Israel was vacated. It was a time of turmoil. The nation was shaken, but the king of heaven, he was still sitting upon his throne, and Isaiah saw the Lord, the king of glory, And John tells us in his gospel that Isaiah saw Jesus here. This is Jesus the Lord. And he is sitting here. He is sitting on a throne. Because that throne belongs to him. 
a position of rest because it is rightfully his throne. He is the Lord, the sovereign who rules all things from his throne. And he is lofty and he is exalted. He is in the very highest place of glory in heaven. And the train of his robe is filling the temple. In those days when a king would sit on his throne, the length of his throne would of his robe would speak of the extent and the majesty of his kingdom. And here is Jesus, and he has such extent and such majesty of his kingdom that the train of his robe is filling the entire temple. And he has attendants who continuously worship him. In verse 2, seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. The seraphim, the burning ones, were worshiping him, and there were thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands of these holy and mighty angels covering their face because they could not look on the brightness of his glory. And they sang of the holiness and the glory of Christ in verse 3, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Holiness and glory belong to him. And the whole temple shook at his presence and his voice and filled with smoke. In verse 4, and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. A most awesome And overpowering vision it was for Isaiah. But it was only a vision that he saw. And it was not the reality of his glory. Because if Isaiah had ever seen the true glory of Jesus upon his throne. It would have been the end of him. His death. Because Christ dwells in unapproachable light. But the scene here gives us just a glimpse into the riches that belong to Jesus Christ as the Son of God upon his throne. He was rich in power and authority. He was rich in splendor and majesty. He was rich in exaltation, in the worship of the angels, in the riches of holiness and glory and all that belonged to his divine person. We see another passage that perhaps helps us a little here, and that's found in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1, and verse 1, he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is Jesus. John takes the words from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, in the beginning God, and here he says, in the beginning from eternity was the Word, and he has had his being and his existence before anything was made. And then he says, and the Word was with God could be better translated or it could be translated the word was towards God or the word was face to face with God and it speaks of the intimacy 
the closest possible relationship and fellowship between the Father and the Son. The Word was with Him, moving toward Him in love and joy and delight, in the fellowship with the Father, and the Father moving toward Him in love, delight, and fellowship, an endless rejoicing and love between the Father and the Son. And then he brings us to the highest point at the end of verse 1, and he says, the Word was God. The Son of God equal with the Father. And whatever could be said of God could be said of him as well. If we look down to verse 18, he says in verse 18, no man has seen God at any time because he dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, says the Apostle Paul. And then he says, the only begotten God. This is Jesus as the Son of God, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. When he uses that expression there, in the bosom of the Father, John uses that to express the most intimate relationship there could possibly be between the Father and the Son. Later in John's Gospel, John will speak of himself in the upper room when he was leaning. He says he was leaning on the bosom of Jesus. He uses the same word. But here when he speaks of Christ, he does not say that he was leaning on the bosom of the Father. But he was in the bosom of the Father. So that there was no distance whatsoever between the Father and the Son. He was in the very bosom of the Father. Not just in his presence, but in the closest possible relationship with him. So this was the eternal home of the Son of God. Before he came into this world, his continual dwelling place from eternity, in fellowship, nearness, happiness, pleasure, in the bliss of being with God the Father in heaven. Now, we could take words and we could pile words upon words here. Incomprehensible, unimaginable, unfathomable, immeasurable. We could take words and begin to pile them upon one, one another to try to understand something, but it really would not help us. If the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit must come and open our minds just a bit to see something of the glory that belonged to Jesus Christ, the riches that belonged to him in his pre-incarnate glory. But he did not remain in that glory. And he came into this world in his second state, which is what we are calling the humiliation of Christ. You remember what our verse said, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Poor in his humiliation. Poor the poverty of his humanity, the poverty of his life and death, when he came into this world as a man. An important passage to help us in this regard is found in the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 
chapter 2. And what we'll do here is we'll begin in verse 6, and we will work our way down through verse 8. In the beginning of verse 6, he said, Paul says, who although he existed in the form of God, the word form refers to the outward appearance of an inner reality, which here means that Christ had the outward appearance of the glory and the splendor of God with the inner reality that belonged to it of being equal with God, his pre-incarnate glory. And this is confirmed in the very next phrase where he says, and he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He had equality with God, but he did not regard that the rights, the prerogatives, the privileges of his equality with God, a thing to be held onto, a thing to be grasped. But in verse 7, but he emptied himself. In other words, he was willing to lay aside the exercise of his divine power and majesty and glory. He emptied himself. He was willing to assume the weakness that belongs to humanity. And he was willing to come into this world in an incarnation. The King James Bible's translated helpfully in this way, they say, he made himself of no reputation. Now, when he says here that he emptied himself, he does not mean in any way that he emptied himself of any aspect of his divinity or that he laid aside any of his divine nature. He remained fully and truly God as he has always been, and God can never change. But in the incarnation, he became fully and truly a man. So that he is now, after the incarnation, the one unique person, two natures in one person forever, divine and human. He is the God-man who is fully and truly God and fully and truly man at the same time. The incarnation was not a subtraction of his deity. The incarnation was an addition of his humanity. Augustine put it this way. Man was added to him. God was not lost to him. He emptied himself, not by losing what he was, but by taking to himself what he was not. And this is what the Apostle now continues to tell us in verse 7. Taking the form of a bondservant. The same word used back up in verse 6, form. Taking to himself the outward appearance of a bondservant and the inner reality of being a bondservant. He was the bondservant of the Lord. He was the servant of his people for their salvation. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve he came as a bondservant to give his life a ransom for many. And then at the end of verse 7, he says, and being made in the likeness of men. Meaning he was made like us in all things 
He had to be made like his brethren in all things, the apostle tells us, Hebrews chapter 2. In our weakness, in our frailty, in our finiteness, in our limitations, all that belongs to our humanity, yet without any sin. And then the beginning of verse 8, he says, and being found in appearance as a man. In other words, that when men looked upon Jesus, they saw man as any other man. They thought he was only a man. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? When they heard him teach in the synagogue, as we read earlier this morning, they said, where did this man get this wisdom? Because all they saw was a man that they knew. His deity was still his, but his deity was veiled under his humanity. He still possessed the riches of his divine nature, but it was now concealed by his human nature. Paul says in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, In him all the fullness of the deity dwelt in bodily form. All the fullness of the riches of the deity was still his in bodily form. But then the apostle tells us now, in the next phrase in verse 8, he says he humbled himself. Now Paul comes to the heart of the very heart of Christ, the sum of everything that he's been saying here. He humbled himself. Christ humbled himself. It was not that he was humbled by others. It was not that he was humbled by circumstances or things outside of himself. But all of this was something that he did willingly, voluntarily to himself. He humbled himself. A step-by-step descent from the throne of heaven coming into this world He humbled himself in every step. He did not grasp his divine majesty and glory that belonged to him. He was willing to lay it aside and empty himself and come into this world as a bondservant in the likeness of men, in the appearance of man, in all of these things. He was willing, the Son of God was willing to humble himself and come down from heaven of his own accord. He humbled himself But then he goes on in verse 8 and he says he humbled himself in what way? By first becoming obedient. Which means that he was obedient to all the law of God. He was the lawgiver himself. But now the lawgiver has placed himself under the law, under all of the requirements of the law that he might keep the law perfectly for sinners who cannot keep the law. Galatians 4 and verse 4, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. But now his humiliation continues in verse 8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient To the point of death, even death on a cross. 
His humiliation now comes to the lowest possible point of poverty and shame. A perfect obedience to the will of his heavenly Father, which now brought him to the point of death, even the most agonizing of all forms of death, the death of a cross, execution by a crucifixion, in which he was nailed upon a cross and left to die by suffocation. It was his obedience to his heavenly father, obedience to Jesus brought him to this point of the death of the cross. The worst part of his obedience here was the sufferings of the soul under the wrath of God. It was not his physical sufferings, but in those six hours as he hung upon the cross, God the Father took all of the wrath that was due to all of his people and concentrated it upon Jesus and poured it out upon him. In his human nature, he suffered the wrath of God and his divine nature upheld him and gave infinite value to his sufferings. But it was our liability and our debt that we owed that we could not pay that was laid upon him in his death upon the cross. And there at the cross, he paid the poverty that belongs to us. No greater poverty could there ever be than to be under the wrath of God for sin. No deeper poverty could any man ever experience than to have the sins of men punished and the penalty of the sins of the world laid upon him. Jesus cried out, from the cross, under the sense of that separation that sin brings, he cried out with a sense of abandonment, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The one who had been high and lofty and lifted up upon the throne in Isaiah's vision, the one who had been with the Father in the presence, in the bosom of the Father, he now cries out from the cross under the agony of human sin, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All of this was the poverty of Jesus. He who was rich became poor. As a man, he suffered for our sins upon that cross. Poverty, a poverty of laying aside the exercise of his glory, majesty, and power as God. Poverty of becoming a man in weakness, frailty, Yet without sin, the poverty of being conceived in the womb of a virgin, an obscure virgin named Mary. The poverty of being born where there was no room for him in the inn and he had to be born on the floor of a manger, helpless, dependent as an infant. The poverty of hunger 
and thirst, and at times there was no place for him to lay his head. Foxes have holes, he said, and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The poverty of weariness. As he fell asleep in the boat in a storm at sea. The poverty of knowing disappointment in his disciples. The poverty of standing before the grave of Lazarus and weeping. The poverty of experiencing the hostility of men. He was despised and he was forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and appointed with grief. No longer surrounded by the holy worship of angels, now surrounded by the bitter, angry voices of men. No longer in the joy of heaven, but now in this world of curse. Tempted by sin. In warfare with the devil and his kingdom. In pain and suffering and agony in the garden of Gethsemane. And he fell upon his face with drops of blood falling down upon the ground. And he knew what it was to cry out to his heavenly father that if it was possible, God's providence toward him would be other than it seemed to be. If possible, he said, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Never was there one so rich who became so poor as our Lord Jesus Christ. From glory to shame, from honor to humiliation, sitting upon a throne of glory in heaven down to hang upon a cross, from the light of heaven to the darkness of the wrath of God in death. The one who gives life to all dies upon a cross. From the highest place of joy and happiness to the lowest place of suffering and agony. Out of obedience to his heavenly father and his commandment to go into the world and to pay the price of sin for sinners. It was by the commandment of his heavenly father. Jesus said, this commandment I received from my father. That's true. But the cross was not forced upon him. He humbled himself willingly to the point of death upon a cross. The cross was not coerced from him. It had to be free and willing or it would not be a true obedience because true obedience must always come willingly from the heart. And so Jesus must say, from his heart as he goes to the cross, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And he humbled himself by becoming willingly obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The poverty of Jesus, even upon the cross, no greater poverty could there ever be than what he endured as he humbled himself to the death of the cross.
So we have seen the first two states of Christ. We turn back in our Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, we see the two states of Christ. In this one verse, the unsearchable riches of his pre-incarnate glory, the depths of his poverty, and his humanity coming down from heaven to the death of the cross. We ask the question, why did he do this? Why was he willing to leave the riches of his pre-incarnate state and to come down in appearance as a man and to die upon a cross? He says in the middle of the verse, he gives us the answer. He says, it was for your sake. It was for your sake, for my sake as sinners who believe in him, for our benefit and for our blessing. And the purpose of it all at the end of the verse was that through, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. We were the ones who were in true poverty. We were in the very worst of poverty in our sins, the poverty of all the debt that we owe. Because of our sins, the poverty of being under the wrath of God, children of wrath, even as the rest. But he took our poverty from us. And he took our poverty upon himself that he might give his riches to us who were poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. A great exchange of his riches and our poverty. It is what Paul said back in chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sometimes we hear of a rich person giving to the poor. But he only gives a little of his riches to relieve a little of the poverty. We never hear of a rich person giving up all his riches to the point where he becomes poor. And we never hear of a rich man giving his riches so that the one in poverty becomes rich. But this is what Jesus Christ has done for us. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. He gave not just riches. He gave himself, is what the Bible says often tells us he gave himself up. He delivered himself up for us. He gave himself to the cross. What are these riches that belong to us? They are spiritual riches. 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus has been given to us. The riches of a new birth by which we were given new life, new hearts, a change in our very nature within us that we could have never accomplished in ourselves, a new birth by which we, who once hated God, now we begin to love him. The riches of faith, which is the gift of Christ to us, that we might believe and rest upon him for salvation. Faith, which is more precious than gold, which perishes. Faith, one of the riches he gives to us. The riches of the righteousness of Christ, freely imputed to us, so that we might stand in the presence of God, holy and blameless, righteous before him. White robes, white robes of righteousness. The richest clothing that a poor sinner could ever wear. The righteousness of Christ given to us that we may be justified. The riches of the blood of Jesus to cleanse and take away all of our sins so that we may be forgiven. Poor filthy sinners Defiled, defiled sinners can come to the fountain that has been opened for sin and impurity and be cleansed. That's riches. We may come every day to the blood of Jesus to be cleansed. The riches of being freed from the slavery of sin and the power of of darkness in the devil's kingdom. That's that's true riches. To be set free from the bondage of sin over us, ruling us, and the darkness and the power of the devil's kingdom. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And there is freedom to us who believe the riches of the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell in us now to open our eyes to see the truth of the word, to sanctify us, to prepare us for the world to come. The Holy Spirit who gives us strength in every time of need and wisdom in perplexity and comfort and peace in times of trouble. The riches of God himself becoming our God. That's what he says to us through Jesus Christ. I will be your God And you shall be my people. What greater riches could sinners on earth ever have than that? The eternal riches of the kingdom to come in the new heavens and the new earth. We we only can imagine what the kingdom will be like. But we will all be brought into it undefiled. It will not fade away. We are the heirs of Christ, Paul says. And joint heirs, fellow heirs with Christ in everything that he has merited in his death upon the cross. So there are these unfathomable, unsearchable riches that belong to us as Christians. They are not temporal riches. They are not fading and passing and rusting riches of this present world. 
They are eternal, everlasting treasures of riches from heaven. Yes, they are hidden now. And yes, the world cannot see them now. And we ourselves cannot see them. But the day is coming when there will be the revealing of the glory of the children of God and all the riches that belong to us will be seen by us and by all the world. There is no one in all the world richer than a Christian. And how has all of this come to us? By grace, he says. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his free and unmerited love to us. By his kindness, generosity, so freely, so abundantly given to us as sinners. All of this given to us by grace. Such great poverty was ours. Such great poverty was ours by nature as sinners. But now... By the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the vast and unsearchable riches of Christ have been freely bestowed upon us. The poorest of beggars we were. But Christ has taken our poverty and given his riches to us and brought us into his kingdom. And all the treasures of his kingdom And all the riches of his banquet hall, they are all freely given to us. What have we done to receive any of this in verse 9? Nothing. Salvation is by grace and by grace alone. By believing, by trusting in Christ alone. So this ought to affect us in how we think and how we live. Because if Jesus redeemed me at such an infinite cost to himself, then there is nothing that I could ever give to him that is too much. And there is no sacrifice that I could ever make that is too great and no loss. No loss. That is too much. If I have been saved by Christ coming from his eternal riches in glory to the poverty of the death of the cross, if that's what he did for me, for my salvation, for my eternal riches, then I no longer am my own. I no longer belong to myself. I have been purchased by him at the most unimaginable cost so that all that I am, my will, my desires, and all that I do, it no longer belongs to me. It must belong to him in everything that I do. So I close with a word to any who do not know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why he laid aside his greatness and majesty and glory 
and power as God and humbled himself and became as poor as a man. One of the reasons why he did so was so that you might not fear him any longer as the great and mighty terrible God. But you might be willing to look upon him and come to him who is so humble, so gentle and low, so that you might see him and his riches are attainable to you if you come to him and he is freely offered to you in the gospel so that for all who come to Jesus and trust him, he is willing to give all the riches that we have spoken of here this morning. You must see your poverty. That's what you must see, how poor you truly are. And you must see Jesus as the only one who has the riches that you need for your salvation. And if you come, he will freely give to you all his riches. He will take your poverty as a sinner away. He will give you the riches of being a child of God. By faith, by faith alone, you must come to him. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God in heaven, we do pray that you would bless your word to us this morning as we have thought upon things that are so high above us. Our minds cannot even begin to comprehend. We cannot even begin to understand these things. Help us, Holy Spirit, come and teach us and open our eyes to behold these wonderful things. We pray that you would bless your word to us now and use it for the good of our souls and be pleased to save those who do not know you today. And we ask that you would hear us this morning. Have mercy upon us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.